Welcome back to our reading of Takeout. We last left our narrator arriving at what was to be a stage, a stage for a performance. Our narrator, the actor, <laughs> and the reward. Well, the reward is Chinese food. Chapter Four, Fear. The foyer had to have been forty feet tall, opening right away on either side to two large rooms through these ten-foot-high archways. Ahead of me, the room pushed back into a fat hall that ran along the staircase to my right. The stairs I was told to climb to dress for dinner. For a moment, I thought how funny it would be if Pete had planned the whole thing, and my takeout was waiting behind all this elaborate nonsense—a surprise birthday thing, maybe. At the time, I didn't consider what day it was. The hunger had eaten my inner calendar to buy me some time. It was not my birthday, and Pete wouldn't even if it was. Climbing the stairs, I tried my best to not let each step creak. I was feeling out of place. The paintings that hung alongside my climb appeared to react to the jarring cracks of my feet bow the wood. I told myself it was just my mind being hungry. It felt like I was making the only sound in the entire building, like everyone hushed to listen in. Between the thunderous stairs and the rumble of my stomach's death opus, I suspected one might think a circus had entered the building. I tried to tell myself it was just my nerves. Backstage butterflies. I was never much of a performer, as I mentioned. If it weren't for the hunger, I would have turned down this sort of job. Fighting off the sprouting thoughts of regret, I pushed on with the memory of my kung pao. The steaming takeout was awaiting my safe return. It was watching over me. There was a handful of rooms at the top of the steps, all closed, and I was in no way curious to see what was behind any of them. Let alone the one I was sent up to. Rupert's room was almost the size of my house. His bed was bigger than my car and had its own roof. Everything was elegant and caked in dust. This was when I started to wonder who Rupert was. My only guess was he was dead, and the family had a strange way of grieving. I also thought that fifty bucks would in no way be altering their bank statements. Not that I wanted any more money; it was just obvious these people were loaded. I set down the box my pretend sister handed me and took in a long, supporting breath. Just as she said, laid out on the bed was an outfit. Wearing other people's clothes makes me uncomfortable, especially if they're dead. Not that I've worn a dead man's clothes. It's just the thought of it was unpleasant, and I was pretty sure that was exactly what I was doing. I was to be some form of closure for this family. This thought did ease my stage fright a bit. It was a good deed I was about to do, so I put on the clothes. The outfit was something a wealthy pirate might wear upon their retirement—a poofy white shirt hugged with a dark maroon vest with these three red stone-like buttons, black silky slacks, shiny shoes, and a long dark blue jacket lined with shiny emerald buttons that obnoxiously dragged on the floor. Once dressed up, I brushed the cobwebs off this fancy mirror standing in the corner and. Took a long look at myself. The fit was loose, and the shoes flopped around my feet with enough play to manage. Rupert wasn't that much larger than me. Still, I felt sort of like a child wearing his father's clothes. I felt silly. I don't think that's the word I want. This wasn't silly. 
Whatever the word is, it didn't matter. What I felt most was hungry. So very hungry. I was sure that once things started moving along, I would loosen up. I just didn't know what to expect. So far, it was strange. But we must eat. Trying to predict what could come of the evening was a troublesome direction of thought. All of my assumptions were tangled in a mind conditioned with the saturation of Hollywood cinema. Growing up, I didn't play sports, didn't go to church, didn't really go to anything. No, I had a VHS library enriched with the myths of the 80s and 90s mainstream popcorn snuff. Even without the hunger weighing on my perception, I was always a ridiculous thinker. My head soup kitchen tended to turn anything unknown into a psychological, thrill-thrusted, horror-drilled, supernatural, frizz-pop plot. With my loose understanding of science and my unhealthy relationship with metaphysical potential, I could justify rationalizing just about any ludicrous possibility. I'm sure there is a name for my passive mental divergence by now. My overstimulated generation has been filtered through the system long enough to have a definition for all the altered personality outcomes it has produced. My diagnosis might sound something like reality-affixed Hollywood plot syndrome, or the over-fable-stimulated uncertainty complex with acute philosophical dementia, or simply media-warped. Through all my obscure hypothesis, I mostly feared screwing it up and ruining their experience possibly pissing them off and not getting paid. My pausing postulation grew a rather troublesome rain cloud over the room. Thankfully, I had a glowing star umbrella. My rising apprehension was nothing when put against the mission. My notable desire for Kung Pao. I would make it to my takeout victory. Love always wins. My stage fright was easing, my courage fortifying. Standing strong with my odd reflection, I was finding myself bummed there wasn't a hat to top this ridiculous attire off. I took the pocket watch out of my pants. I set it on the ground and gave a listen for anyone around. Not a creature was stirring. I stomped the watch with my heel. It was a good thump. I heard the thing crack and could see the line of imperfection I gave the helpless timepiece. A worthy sacrifice for a more than worthy cause. Picking it up, I realized I could have just left it unwound and pretended it was broken. I actually could have used the thing later. Maybe even traded it back for my shoes. I put the broken watch in my pocket and reread my line. Damn thing. Turning for the door, I almost forgot to open the box my pretend sister gave me, which was when I realized I never got her name. The employer spot on the job slip just said, not available. I only knew my pretend name, Rupert. I've never met a Rupert. Opening the box was sort of frightening. Removing the lid, I jumped at the sight of a gun. It was an antique, and the letter inside assured me it still worked. It was an old western-looking revolver with a thick barrel. The letter inside was addressed to me, and was from Rupert, and its contents had me sweating. It read as follows. Dear troubled soul, I do so apologize for the situation that has befallen you. I am the Rupert that you are impersonating this evening, a strange demented game my family plays on innocent folk such as yourself. Not entirely their fault. They didn't make themselves, and I'm sure there will be times during your experience where they will forget they hired you to pretend, 
and you will be looked upon as the real me. There was a week where my youngest sister Reese thought I was a raspberry bush. I would wake up to the watering can most mornings. After I died, they all just sort of fell apart. Not that they were anywhere close to being all together when I was alive. Alas, something about my presence seemed to keep their madness at bay. And don't worry, I assure you that my oldest sister has not read or opened this box. Her loyalty to my privacy will transcend even the end of time. Now, to the dreadful matter at hand. You have a 50% chance that they will just have a pleasant evening with you, and then send you on your way. But the flip side to that coin is that they will kill you. With the best of intentions, mind you, while attempting to dig the demon out of your skull with the hammer I used to call Remington. A good hammer I loved very much. This is sadly how I met my end. If you do your best to not call attention to things that might startle them or make them feel uneasy, they might not fall prey to the same delusion that has ended so many before you. And the most important thing, hold on, someone is outside the door looking to come in. Quickly, put the gun in the holster I've sewn inside the jacket. You might need it to save your life. It's loaded and working. Now eat this letter and... I was interrupted then with a knock at the door that punched an awful tremor into my heart. Panic, like I've never known, itched my skin with a cruel vertigo. Along with the sudden halt in my reading, the ink that filled the words that followed the last I read melted right off the paper as if it were Rupert fleeing. The sight was beyond troublesome. The thought of my soon-coming brutal murder whispered out from the corners of the room the word death. And I whispered out in response, What was that? There was no answer. I tried to think if I had taken anything unorthodox since I had arrived that would coax a hallucination. Had the extravagant woman offered me anything that might have altered my perception? Was the job slip laced with something more groovy than a funny cigarette? Tripping balls was the last thing I needed. There was another knock at the door, and that awful tremor that kept my heart afloat pumped a cold terror through my veins. This was it. This was to be death. The knock at the door was the reaper come to escort me to my final meal. Again, my heart screamed with a third knock. This time, it was followed by a voice. You don't come in. As the door started to peek into the room, I crumbled the paper and tossed it into my mouth, concealed the revolver in my jacket, and stood up straight to face the intruder. In walked a dwarf with arms that could reach his feet. He held them outright, looking somewhat like a marionette. He was wearing a tuxedo t-shirt, a brown suit jacket with a brown handkerchief neatly folded in the front pocket, a bowler hat with a green plastic stem feather sticking out a good seven inches, and playing card pajama bottoms. They were an eyesore, too much white and red. His voice was very English. He sang out, Rupert, how long's it been then, eh? Oh, say, you look bashing. He spoke with a deranged smile and with a lot of unnecessary tongue action. I found myself feeling nervous he might bite it off with every other word. Another thing to note was none of his teeth touched one another. They were all healthy-looking kernels lining his gums, but very independent. He continued talking as he walked in towards me, his long arms extending out my way. Well, Rupert, my dear, dear friend, 
I'd love to stand here and chew your ears off, but I'm sure the others will be interested all the same in your travels. And I would hate to have you repeat yourself all night. I'm not ashamed to admit that I've always been one to smash a record player without thinking in order to relieve myself of that infernal skipping that just burns my blood to unbearable temperaments. If there is anything I hate more in this world, it is repetition. His hand grabbed the jacket at my wrist and he turned to show me the way. I wasn't done with the box, and I froze as he tugged my jacket and continued talking. I kicked a cat once, right out the northern bay window. Booted a fluffy cunt from meowing the same exact meow. Just thinking of that memory has me frustrated. You know, there is something even about a repetition and remembering something that tickles me the wrong way. Repeats, they irk me something awful. I've never even worn the same item of clothes more than a single go. Ponting a puss was a bit off colour. I know it. Poor little feline didn't deserve her fate. I could have just as easily went to another room. Lord knows there are plenty of them around here. In my moment, my therapist tells me don't destroy it. He was hanging off my jacket like a child tugging at their parent. Hanging with a heavy lean, he was too weak to move me. His shoes had no tread, so he just slid on the floor as his efforts to move just walked in place. I swallowed my fear with a noticeable gulp and asked him to give me a moment. This, of course, came out sort of mumbly as I was still chewing the mysterious letter. The little guy stopped his legs and gave me a funny look. I spit the mushy paper out onto the floor and his look didn't change. He just hung off my jacket at a saggy slant looking to the wet wad and then back to me. I asked again, can I have a minute? I needed to see the rest of the box before I dined with the madness that would or would not be killing me. He gestured in approval for my request, and I looked to find there was already a broken watch inside the box. My poor shoes, I thought. Rupert's non-ticking watch was a foreshadowing of what I feared would soon be my non-ticking heart. Who names a hammer? Turning back to the dwarf, I reluctantly huffed. Okay, Charlie. I'm ready. Assuming he was the Charlie I was told would be waiting outside my door, I just blurted his name. Which he was. Only he didn't wait. He came right in. He came in and spit out a stream of unsettling words that gave the unsettling contents of the unsettling letter an unsettling amount of unsettling ground to unsettle me a most profound unsettling. Who names a hammer? The thought of takeout kept me focused, kept me strong. I had a 50% chance, as the unsettling letter had informed me. Comfortable enough odds in the name of Chinese takeout. And so it was to be... Life or death? Charlie smiled. Right, this way, Rupert. Down the stairs and around the hall we went, passing the butler, still on his way to the main door, to greet me, his voice softly addressing us as we passed. Can't talk now, sir. There's someone knocking at the door. Charlie ignored the butler and continued to lead me to the dining room. We passed twelve closed doors, three that were open. One was stocked with what appeared to be dozens of unused bathtubs. 
The second was stuffed with paper noodling out someone's thoughts from a typewriter stationed in the middle of the room, filling every bit of space with one long, impossible sheet. And the third open door was full of neatly organized shoes. The room even rose to the second floor with strangely familiar footwear. Along the way, there were 35 paintings of the backs of people's heads, 10 vases with little dead palm trees, and five different exotic birds, all of which flew by us in the opposite direction, all of which Charlie lunged for with an animal-like growl. He was unsuccessful with each attack, and the birds kept on their way. There were four turns, one of them was left, the others were right, and there were three ringing telephones I was told to ignore. Stopping outside the dining room door, Charlie paused as he rested his hand on the knob. He turned to look up my way and said, I can't express myself enough, sir. It is just so nice having you back. Things around here just haven't been the same without you. I nodded and thought about how I had never fired a gun or held one until a few minutes ago. I was hoping the letter was a joke and that I had just found myself on some new hidden camera television program. Hopeful thinking. Either way, I knew this dinner would be the strangest experience of my life. So far, everything leading up to then already was. Who names a hammer? What will this dinner entail? I wonder. How will our narrator's performance be received? Or does it matter? We must wait until the next chapter to find out. Farewell, listener.